Thank you, Rusty, for reading through Mark 13, the chapter. It just seemed like there's so much that occurs there that it was important to get the context about it so we can see some of the things that are going to unfold this morning and that have an eye as to what will be coming up. Uh, what quick, quickly grabs our attention, though, when we read this chapter are the amazing signs that Jesus gives when he answers his disciples. Now, that's only natural. Jesus talks about wars and famines and earthquakes, betrayals, beatings, nations, kingdoms, abomination of desolation, stars falling from heaven, the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, angels sent to pick up His elect. That makes for very dramatic reading. I mentioned to my wife this past week that I have this picture of my mind of standing on a platform on the 4th of July before a large crowd just after dark. I've been asked to read the Declaration of Independence. And as I begin, suddenly the Wichita Symphony bursts into a rousing rendition of the Stars and Stripes Forever. Overhead, the stealth bomber squadron from the Air Force Base performs a low flyover. Fireworks of all kind begin to explode in brilliant colors filling the sky, accompanied by loud, booming explosions. It soon becomes quite obvious that the core purpose of the celebration, the remembrance of the Declaration of Independence, was nowhere on anyone's mind as it was completely overshadowed by the overpowering sights and sounds surrounding it. Now Mark 13 is far more significant, long-lasting, and life-changing than the Declaration of Independence. Yet, when this chapter is read, what stands out? If I were to ask you for three details from the chapter that was read earlier, what would you probably remember? Probably the signs and wonders. Those things are unusual. They stand out. But, in that chapter, what else did Jesus give? Especially in these first 13 chapters. And if you come to just be passive, you've come to the wrong place. <laughs> I want you to look in your scriptures as we're going through this. Those first 13 chapters, besides signs and wonders, what does Jesus give? He gives commands. What some folks would call imperatives. In these first 13 verses, we will examine seven commands Jesus gives His disciples on how to live life when He is no longer walking beside them. Now, how soon will that be? Well, actually, within 24 hours, He will be arrested and taken from them. Within a day and a half, Jesus will be dead and gone. Prophetic signs such as the ones in Mark 13 are a big challenge to interpret. As I look through the different commentaries, almost all of them begin with, this is perhaps one of the most difficult chapters to interpret. This week I studied the interpretation of Mark 13 from the writings of several solid Bible teachers whom many of you love and trust. And I do too. That's why I read them. However, the differences between these reputable men of God in interpreting the prophetic signs in Mark 13 are astounding. One position is that the signs and prophecies of this chapter were all completely fulfilled in a generation of Jesus' day and culminated in the destruction of the temple in the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Everything was fulfilled in that time. These would be called preterists. The group on the other end of the hermeneutical or interpretation spectrum would see the majority, if not all, of these prophecies were announced by Jesus to his disciples as events that would happen far in the distant future. Thousands of years later, still yet to be realized. These are sometimes called futurists. There are some scriptural grounds for both interpretations. There certainly are. But most of us in here, I would imagine, would find ourselves in neither extreme, but probably somewhere in between those two poles, as futurists or preterists. Now, if you were paying close attention to the chapter as it was read this morning, 
And I like the final part of that. At the end of the chapter, all that reading, it says, stay awake, which is appropriate. And I hope you all were. But as we read that, you may have had the experience of thinking, okay, I see where Jesus is going with this and, and how that could be, only to all of a sudden feel like he abruptly turned the wheel and is going down the road in a drastically different direction than you thought he was going. Sometimes it seemed that way. One of the really big challenges we face is to understand when Jesus is talking about things happening immediately to himself and his disciples and when he is speaking about prophecies in the far distant future. And often the prophecies, and, and, and bear with me here, please think this through. And we all come with presuppositions. We've, we've gone down this road, we've heard this from these speakers that we really liked, and, and then we've heard these over here. And we all have some place where we think this is going to go and should be. And, and a lot of us are trying to understand it much better. The prophecies we will study will often have the ability to cover immediate events that will happen in the near future. And yet that occurrence also simultaneously being a type or shadow of greater events that will happen when the Lord does return in His second coming. Someday yet to come, over 2,000 years later from this moment Jesus is speaking. We can't imagine somehow that, that Jesus was speaking to these men in sincerity, but not speaking to them at all. That just doesn't make sense. When he spoke to them, he spoke to them to communicate with them. And yet there are things happening here that are said that, that we know haven't happened clearly. So we, we go into this and we try to study it. One preacher pointed out that throughout the Old Testament, the understanding of the Messiah grew. There were many prophecies, were there not, that spoke who he would be. His lineage, his location, his role, and yet, when he arrived, born to a very young, married, but virgin Jewish girl, and this Messiah was placed in a livestock feed trough at his birth, followed by the young family of Jesus fleeing for their lives to Egypt to escape death and then returning anonymously to the shameful village of Nazareth where he would grow up in obscurity. Most of the learned men of Israel didn't see that coming. Then why should we expect the prophecies of the second coming of Christ spoken of in this chapter and elsewhere in the New Testament to be easy to grasp, crystal clear, and with no wondering. But I do know this. I know that when Jesus does actually return, every single sign and prophecy will be fulfilled in absolute detail. And I can only imagine probably in ways that none of us have imagined. But in exact detail, exactly as he said. Now as we study, we will not ignore the signs. But signs will not be our main focus. Signs grab our attention. And they serve a purpose in Scripture. However, you cannot obey biblical signs. They are indicators. You obey commands. Now, the question is, why is that our priority of the study of Scripture? Because Jesus said in John 14, 21, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. I want to love Jesus, and I know that most of you do too. That is why the emphasis will be on what Jesus commanded and how we can love and obey him. The accompanying signs will be secondarily, seen secondarily, but they will be important. This is a tremendous chapter. This can prepare us for things ahead. This can bring us peace in the middle of the storm. This can give us direction when we're in a thick, thick bank of fog. If we will lean on what Jesus has said here. <clears throat> Alan Stibbs, a professor at Oak Hill Theological College in London, gave this advice to his students when dealing with hermeneutically challenging passages of God's Word. He said this, do not try to satisfy an unhealthy curiosity. 
It is a serious misuse of Scripture to try to make it disclose more than God has purposed to reveal. Let me say that again. It is a serious misuse of Scripture to try to make it disclose more than God has purposed to reveal. One preacher I'm sure many of you are familiar with simplifies a task saying, the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. Let us pray as we begin to dig into this chapter. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. And I thank you for what you have said here. And Lord, I, I confess I, I don't begin to know how to precisely, exactly lay everything out. And uh, yet, Lord, everything is known before you. And we are thankful that you have given this to us to direct and lead our lives. So much is absolutely clear. And I pray that you would help us, Lord. Speak, please, through your word. Oh, Lord God, please speak through me. Where I'm in error, please dismiss that, move that away. Forgive me. And where you speak, Lord, lead us and guide us and teach us from your word. Thank you. Thank you for all that you have done, your sovereignty, your power, your control of time as, as we look at these things. How you... You are not bound. You are not limited by time in any way. It all lays naked and open before you. Lord, lead us and teach us. Show yourself to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Verse 1, chapter 13. Then as he went out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. This is an extremely sober moment in the history of the city of Jerusalem, in the temple, and in the entire Jewish nation. Do you read what this says? Jesus leaves the temple. The temple of Yahweh. The temple of God. His temple. He is leaving it. Not for the day, but for the final time. Jesus will never enter that temple and teach there again. This is it. The next day, Thursday, he and his disciples will celebrate Passover, where Jesus will speak of the new covenant with his blood, which we had the great privilege of celebrating this morning. The following day, Friday, that precious blood will soak the beams of a rough wooden cross in his execution. On Sunday, oh, Sunday. Like no other day in the history of the world or of the universe, he will conquer death forever for all who trust in him. Hallelujah. That's what lays ahead, but we're not there yet. Now, at this moment, he and his men are leaving. And one of the disciples, overwhelmed with the immensity and beauty of the temple and its surrounding campus, exclaims, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. He was duly impressed and well he should have been. It was breathtaking. You see, this is not the temple Solomon built in 957 B.C. That temple was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians almost four centuries later in 587 B.C. At that time, the city of Jerusalem and its temple were completely demolished. The vast majority of the Jewish population were either killed or deported as slaves. Seventy years later, Ezra records that Zerubbabel led the rebuilding of the temple on that site as the exiled Jews returned to their homeland from Babylon. That temple was completed about 516 B.C. Almost 500 years later, Nineteen BC, Herod the Great undertook a mammoth remodeling and expansion of the temple. It would continue under construction past Herod's death, through the lifetime of Jesus, and on until the Roman invasion in 70 AD. Almost 90 years of building. Herod increased the temple campus area to 35 acres. And you can see the smaller Solomon's temple on the left, 
just for size. It wasn't located there. But that's how big it had been. Herod bumped that up quite a ways. It was about a mile in circumference, the Temple Mount. It was large enough to hold approximately 12 football fields. The temple sanctuary soared up to a height of 150 feet. Josephus, the Jewish historian, records that some of the stones used for the temple were 60 feet in length, 11 feet high, and 18 feet deep, weighing far more than a million pounds each. And although none of that large stones have been discovered, one measuring 42 feet long, 11 feet high, and 14 feet deep, weighing over a million pounds, was unearthed at the temple excavation site. To understand the enormity of those bricks, 11 feet high would be about halfway up that screen. The depth and width of that those stones would go from that wall clear out to the front row, row here. And the length, this thing, I'm not sure exactly, it's about 35 feet wide, long. So they were that high, that deep, and they stretched out twice as long almost as this platform. Some of them 10 more feet than this platform. That's, that's mind-boggling. The question comes to mind, how did they get them there? How did they put one on top of the other? And not only were they huge, they were hewn so precisely that it required no mortar. They placed these stones one up against another and it was snug and it was tight. It's amazing, this, this building. One commentator indicated that Herod's temple looked like a mountain of marble decorated with gold. The temple complex was architecturally stunning and must have looked strong enough to stand for a thousand years or more. Another said it was one of the architectural marvels of the ancient world. In comparison with any other known temple, Edwards wrote this, the magnitude of the temple mount and the stones used to construct it exceed in size any other temple in the entire ancient world. Another wrote this, it was, its design was stunning. In the morning, when you came over the top of the Mount of Olives, you couldn't even look at the building because the morning sun reflecting off the gold would blind one. In the evening, its glory was only slightly diminished, perhaps the most strikingly beautiful building in the ancient world. Along that eastern wall, it was covered with gold, and when that sun came up, it just glared out of there like, like the sun. It was spectacular. Now, I don't want to distract from what we're trying to do here. But this man was, this disciple was enthralled with what he was seeing. So I want to share a 90 second video to capture the feeling of awe that had come over this enthralled disciple. That is spectacular. That is what these disciples and Jesus were walking through. That is where Jesus was teaching in the midst of all that. Now hear Jesus in verse 2. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Not one of these gigantic million pound stones will be left one upon another. And here is our first sign. Not one stone shall be left upon another. As breathtaking as this architectural masterpiece must have been. The Romans without hesitation fulfilled Jesus' prediction to a T in the year A.D. 70. Millions of Jews were killed in Rome's de devastating invasion. Two, to destroy the temple, the Roman general Titus Vespasian built large wooden scaffolds along the wall loaded them with combustible material and then set them on fire. So intense was that heat that the gigantic stones literally crumbled and the marauding soldiers rushed in, sifted through it all to find the precious gold that inlaid and overlaid many of the temple's features and furnishings. This devastation was so complete that Josephus, the Jewish historian, described it this way. 
Caesar ordered the whole city and the temple to be razed to the ground. All the rest of the wall encompassing the city was com so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot no ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. All that remains is what they call often, and you may see sometimes, uh, the western or the wailing wall. And there's some of the foundation, huge foundation stones still remain. But that's about it. Well, that is it. The rest had been thrown down into the Kidron Valley. The Romans had decisively erased this off the globe. Now, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives in verse 3, opposite the temple... Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? This is a driving question in the hearts of the disciples. See, Jesus is seated on the west side of the Mount of Olives, which is why this speech is often called the Olivet Discord, there at the Mount of Olives. His view is from 300 feet above Jerusalem looking directly across the Kidron Valley into the city. The Jewish Mishnah, it's a commentary book used by Jews, it declares that someone standing on top of the Mount of Olives should be able to look directly into the entrance of the sanctuary. That's where Jesus is. So far, no discussion appears to have taken place since Jesus' startling comment while leaving the temple. But it was obviously top of mind to the disciples. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, two sets of brothers who were closest to Jesus during his ministry, they follow up with him now. Jesus had been brief, but very clear. They didn't ask him to repeat what he said, or if they had heard him correctly, they said, when will these things be? What will be the sign? The two looming questions, when will they be fulfilled? What will be the sign, the indication of these things? You see, as expected, excuse me, as unexpected as Jesus' life and ministry had been to the Jews of his day, they all believed that the Messiah would only come once. That was not God's plan. Isaiah described the first coming of this Messiah as the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53. Revelation 19, 11-19 describes his second coming as the victorious king. The disciples did not foresee this at all. Surely, they're thinking, Jesus, this Messiah, must be about to take over the reins, throw off the oppression of Rome, and restore Israel to dominance. The announced destruction of the temple signaled in their minds that Jesus' big move is going to be imminent. It must happen. When will this happen, Jesus? And what should we look for? Here is his answer. <clears throat> Verse 5. And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. That's not exactly what they asked, is it? But that's how he answers. Take heed that no one deceives you. Our first command. Take heed that no one deceives you. Be on guard. Literally, look to yourselves. Keep your eyes open. Do not let anyone lead you astray, nor cause you to roam. For, verse 6 says, many will come in my name saying, I am, and will deceive many. Our second sign is that many will come in Jesus' name. Many imposters will claim, I am, I me. It is the name Jesus often used of himself. And the name that, what did it do? It infuriated the Jewish leaders because Jesus was taking on the name of God. Mark 14, verses 62 through 64, Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Jesus tells his disciples there, Jesus said, Not a few but many will come to deceive, and many will be deceived. But watch yourself, he says. 
Many did come. Even during the time of the apostles. Paul wrote this caution to Timothy. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. Deceiving and being deceived. Peter warned in 2 Peter chapter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people. Even as there will be false teachers among you. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Even denying the Lord who bought them. And bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow. Many will follow their destructive ways. Because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle. And their destruction does not slumber. Be on guard. Watch yourself. These things will come. And as with many of the signs we will see. And already fulfillment coming relatively soon but a not yet greater fulfillment that would increase in intensity and frequency as time goes forward. It's as he will speak of soon the labor pains that increase. We see that, that these imposters came at the time of Christ during the 60 AD period. There were many that came through Israel and we see them today and it will only increase. First command, take heed that no one deceive you. But, verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled. Do not be alarmed. Command number two. For such things must happen, but the end is not yet. So we see our third sign. We will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Now the word is polemos. It means to battle, to fight. To bustle, to war. For nation will rise against nation. And kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places. And there will be famines and troubles. And these are the beginnings of sorrows. Or the birth pangs. Sign number four. We will rise. Excuse me. Nation will rise against nation. And kingdom against kingdom. The word nation there is ethnos. It means race, tribe, people, Gentile. Races will fight to the death to annihilate another race. We've seen that all over the globe. And we see it today in our cities. Strife from race or ethnic group to ethnic group. Kingdoms. Kingdom is basilia. It means a realm or a royalty. Actually, wars will be constant. And so will the continuous war threats and incursions that keep increased war always on the horizon. Why so much war? Well, there is a long list of theories of why people war. Here are a few of them. I had not ever heard most of these. The Marxist theory. Because of economic inequality, wars will happen. The evolutionary theory. Relying on survival of the fittest. The behavioral theory. Some people have an inherent violent bend. The demographic theory. Expanding population leads to conflict. The rationalistic theory. Because of information asymmetry. Some people just don't have enough information. And the political science theory. A quest for security. And that's a few since 1985, war has taken a half a million lives each year. World War II, 72 million people were killed. From AD 755 to 763, the Great War of China struck down 36 million people. During the 13th century, during the Mongol conquest, 30 to 60 million were slaughtered. 20 million died in World War I. The deepest reason, however, for the proliferation of war is found in God's Word. James 4, verse 1 says, and it asks the question, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure? That war in your members you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and con cannot obtain. You fight and war. It is our nature. The fifth sign are earthquakes in various places. Serious earthquakes here. 
Not like some that people told me they felt last week and I didn't even know happened. I'm sure they did, but I didn't catch them. These are what's called seismoi and megaloi. Gigantic earthquakes. Shortly after Jesus' ministry on earth, Phrygia experienced a vicious quake in AD 61. Pompeii was leveled by another earthquake in AD 63. They happened there, right after Jesus told them. But today, it is said that 500,000 earthquakes are noted annually that register on the Richter scale. Only about 100,000 of them are detectable that we would feel. We live on literally very shaky ground and we have for thousands of years. Famines. Famines, it's our sixth sign. Famines have been a serious threat to the survival of large numbers of people groups for thousands of years. Drought, political reasons, wars. Suddenly people are thrust into famine and have no access to food. We hear rumors of that even now as we talk about supply chain difficulties. All these kind of fuel shortages. Famines can occur. And they do. But this does not mean what you think it means. And that's what Jesus says. Verse 7. But the end is not yet. And in verse 8. These are the beginnings of sorrows. That already but not yet. It is happening. But it is yet to be fulfilled. Sorrows as I mentioned earlier. It's also translated as birth pains in several of your translations. It's a pang or a throw, especially of childbirth. And this implies, as we read it, that there will be a gradual increase of intensity and pain before the arrival or the fulfillment of Jesus' second return. The second command we read there is, Do not be troubled. Do not be alarmed. Now verse 9. But, watch out for yourselves. For they will deliver you up to councils and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Again, be on your guard and preach the gospel. Keep your eyes open and look out. Our seventh sign, you will be delivered up to councils. And you will be beaten in the synagogues. That word council is the Greek word sunadrion, which is the plural of Sanhedrin. What this is talking about is a smaller local version in each village of the, and it's like the great Sanhedrin, but it's the smaller courts in each of the villages in the synagogues. Their courts were held, their punishment and penalty were carried out. Jesus tells them, You will be beaten. Dero, it means to flay, to scourge, to thrash. 39 lashes comes from Deuteronomy. They cut it down to 39 from 40 so that they wouldn't accidentally go over the 40. And it left men brutally beaten. Skin flayed off their backs with muscle, tendon, blood everywhere. That's what he's telling you will happen to the disciples. Our third command here is again to watch out for yourselves. You will be brought before rulers and kings. The rulers are leaders. They're governors. They're chief persons. The kings are sovereigns. The final authorities. In this trial, Jesus declares, however, as gruesome as it seems, the greatest of opportunities. It will be for a testimony to them. In the ESV it says, this will give you an opportunity to bear witness This will bring men like Paul, like Peter and John, others, perhaps some of us someday, before men and before groups of people that we would have never imagined. And we may be there with barely the clothes on our back and blood everywhere, but we will have the opportunity to speak of the gospel in ways that we never imagined. And the testimony of our lives will speak like nothing we've ever had. It will be brutal, but it will be the most wonderful opportunity you can imagine. Luke verse 21, chapter 21, verse 13, the parallel to this, Luke includes, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Our fourth commandment, 
and I, I kind of maybe stretched it a little bit. This is implied. The gospel must first be preached to all nations. First here is the word protos. It's, it's the first. It's superlative. This is the foremost. Preaching the gospel everywhere must be our priority. This is going to be convicting for a lot of us. Uh, these things. Don't worry about this. Be convicted. Preach the word. Endure hardship. Speak whatever is given to you. And I hope it is for all of us. This, the opportunities that lay ahead are monumental. This command also serves as a sign that the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Did this happen in the generation Jesus spoke to? Well, Paul wrote, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To the believers in Colossae, Paul wrote, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard about, heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world. And is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. And again in Colossians chapter 1 verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Again, it's the already, but not yet. While the gospel was preached, in a sense, throughout the known world at that time, there still remains a sense in which it is yet to be preached. Unreached people groups. Even Paul himself said this, And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. The already not yet gospel must first be preached. To preach the gospel, wrote Paul to the Corinthians, in regions beyond you, and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. Verse 11. And this, grab a hold of this, hold dear to this. Young people, you are growing up in a, in a culture, in a society that, that us old people never would have imagined. And what lays ahead? You need to know these things in order to thrive with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If he preserves you and allows you to be beaten and brought before kings, and rulers, as a testimony of him, praise God. Look what he tells us here. When they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand. Command number five. Or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. Command six. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Do not worry beforehand. But speak. When they arrest you, bring you to trial, which is a sign, and deliver you up, hand you over. The fifth command says, do not worry beforehand. Do not be anxious about how you're going to explain or even give an amazing defense of a testimony. This is Jesus' command, but it is not our natural response. We want to get these things figured out beforehand. I am terrible about that. I go into a meeting or I, there's something come up and I'm rehearsing. Well, what if they say this? What if that happens? Yeah, I'll, I'll try this. I'll, this is so good. Do not worry beforehand. It doesn't mean if you're going to preach, don't worry, don't do any preparation. That's not at all. What is this talking about? In those times of trial, when you are faced with these wonderful opportunities and they come, Jesus will speak through you. Through His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will give you the words. We often want, don't want to get these things. We don't want to say something stupid or wrong. Or get ourselves and everyone else into trouble. But Jesus says in Luke 21. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom. Listen to this. Which all your adversaries 
will not be able to contradict or resist. I pray that for you in your places of work, among your extended family, that you will be men and women that are spoken, of, spoken through by the Spirit of God. Edwards wrote, Disciples are again reminded that faithfulness does not consist in forecasting the future and determining preemptive responses, but rather in trusting that God will give them grace to complete their service in His name. And indeed, indeed will even speak through them in their deepest need. The sixth commandment, whatever is given to you in that hour, speak it, speak that. In contrast to worrying or fretting beforehand, speak what is given to you at that moment. Why? He says, because it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit may specifically direct what you say in words, your tone, your volume, and he may direct the hearing and mind of the persecutor to hear exactly what God desires him to perceive. In Acts 4.13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness in Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. Don't expect these things to be fluent with you if you are not spending time with Jesus and His Word. This is a comfort. This is a joy. This is a promise. But if you don't, if you don't spend any time with Him, don't expect to have His answers. Know Him. Love Him. Follow Him. Study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman who does not need to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. As we already decided, Mark 13 is a challenge. And will I rightly divide it all? No, I won't. And, and I understand that. And if I did, it'd be the first time. Because this is, this is amazing and difficult stuff and, and great men that we love and respect have, have really debated over this. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about when you stand before men and women in authority, God will give you His Word. Why? As a testimony to Himself. Paul wrote to Timothy, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me. And that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Know who the lion was? I believe it was Nero. That Paul had the opportunity to speak in such a setting. Verse 12 says, Brother will betray brother to death. And a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Of all the situations here, this sign is the most difficult for me. It's the saddest. We read this. The dearest relationships will have the most brutal conflict. Our sign, 11th sign, is the betrayal and the cause to be put to death. This will go to the point, it says, of murdering, executing, conspiring against a close brother. Ones who even are professing Christianity. Ones that may be sitting in the same row that you're in. And that may seem preposterous, but it has happened throughout the persecuted church over and over again. People will do that. A family member. Can you? This is hard. A parent with a child to death. A child with his parent to death. To the assembled believers in Thessalonica, Paul wrote, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. We are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. I am telling you that. Just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. Second Timothy 3 clarifies, it says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Our final verse this morning. Jesus' great promises. Verse 13. Look at it. Is it a warning or is it a promise? And you will be hated by all 
for my name's sake. It speaks of comprehensive hatred. Mark 24 reads, And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. And because lawlessness will abound, the love that we talked about last week, the agapao love of many will grow cold. Lawlessness will impact and destroy love. But with that, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. With that comes the greatest honor of all honors. Revelation 7, beginning with verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? And where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is on the midst, in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a job description. What benefits. Amazing. Would you not love to serve night and day before the living God in His temple, before His throne? And the conclusive command the seventh command, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Endure. Don't let go. Hold fast. Hebrews chapter 4, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews 10, let us hold fast our confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Isaiah 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of His people He will take away from all the earth. And for the Lord has spoken, and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, and He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. We will rejoice and be glad in His salvation. And the Lord wrote Paul to Timothy, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for His heavenly kingdom. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. We hold fast, but we hold fast because God clamps our hands onto His promises. It's not our strength. It's His strength, but we walk in obedience to those commands. I just want to read a few sections of Scripture in closing. Hebrews 10, 34-39. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you, need, you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come, and will not tarry. Now the just will live by faith. But if any draw, one draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, to destruction, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Capsulized instruction from Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. And it goes so much well with this this morning. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. But if you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not the night 
nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch. Watch yourselves. Be on guard. Be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Then those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Therefore, comfort each other daily and edify one another, just as you are also doing. There is a truckload of commands given to us in these scriptures this morning of how to handle the days that lie ahead. As trials come, as persecutions come, go to the Word of God. Deeply dig into Mark 13 into these scriptures from Hebrews, and these scriptures from Timothy, Thessalonians. And you will find a direction. God will lead you, and he will give you all that you need. If you do not know him, if you have held back because uh, it just didn't seem like the right time, or it seemed like too big of a cost, or whatever the reason may be, don't tarry in that, that dangerous, dangerous position any longer. It's as one of the the old authors said, you are dangling over the pit of hell by a thin thread. And most of those threads snap. And they fall into that abyss. But you, if you will come to Christ and repent and call upon him, he will save you. Come and follow him. Are you ready? You can never now say, Jesus didn't warn me. Jesus didn't prepare me. You have, you have heard his word this morning. I pray that it will change me and you and it will prepare, prepare us for his glory in the days ahead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your son Jesus. Be the way, the truth, and the life. All that he spoke was pure, faultless, powerful. Lord, we thank you. And we thank you for uh, your Holy Spirit. I pray that it will open this up to each of our hearts. And you will direct us, Lord. I pray from this small assembly, you will break open doors of utterance for the testimony of Christ all over the world, here locally, throughout our state, our country and throughout the planet. Lord, may we consider the cost. Nothing can be to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us as we testify to you. Lord, help us. Prepare us, sanctify us. I pray for those, Lord, who still hang back at the threat of eternal life life, eternal loss and judgment. Pray that you would grant them new hearts. I pray that they would drop the stubbornness and the rebellion and the resistance to you and come and follow you. That they would not be fooled by the enemy. That they would see that their father is Satan until you become their father. Please work in the hearts of the unsaved. Please work in the hearts of your people and be magnified. In your name we pray. Amen.